Well, there you have it, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn there. Once upon a time, there was a handsome prince who fell in love with a beautiful maiden. The prince's enemy trapped the maiden and held her captive in a tall tower somewhere in Scotland. The prince had a plan to rescue this beautiful maiden, and he solicited the help of two small animals, one a caterpillar and the other a butterfly. Now, the caterpillar's name was Claude, and the butterfly was Barney. The butterfly, you know, alliteration. They did it in those days. And um, they were just two different creatures. The caterpillar named Claude was just an ornery, angry, grumpy, pudgy, sweaty caterpillar. He was the kind of personality that, as he went his way to inform the princess that the prince was coming to rescue her, he looked outside and it was a bright, beautiful, sunny day, and he complained. He said, oh, great, it would have to be sunny. That's all that I need, because after all, he was a little overweight for a caterpillar, and he was sweating as he crawled along the dust. But as providence would have it, the rain clouds came in and a gentle breeze and just a light, misty rain came and Claude the caterpillar said, oh great, now it's going to rain. It always rains on me. He made his way to the tower and there next to the tower was a vine that shot up vertically up toward the tower that he could climb. It was a rose bush. And so as Claude inched his way upward, you could hear him, ouch, 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 hitting every thorn and complaining all the way. When he got to the window and he saw the beautiful maiden, he started speaking. Hey, lady, you the maiden in distress? Why, yes, she said. Claude gave this young lady a once-over a look, and he said, I don't get it. I don't see what the prince sees in you at all. But nevertheless, he's coming at 5 o'clock, and you ought to be ready. Got it? And he went back home. Next came in Barney the butterfly. He graciously flitted around the room until he got her attention, and she looked as he made his way toward her, put out her hand, and she lighted upon his finger. And he said to her, beautiful and dearly loved young maiden. Oh, how the prince loves you so. At five o'clock, jump from the window and jump into his arms. He will be waiting there to rescue and to cherish you. She said, thank you, little butterfly, but tell me. The caterpillar, Claude, was just here not too long ago, and boy, he was rude, he was angry, he was mean, and he brought good news, but in such a horrible manner. And the butterfly smiled and said, oh, that's Claude. That's just the way he is. And he said, I was that way before I was transformed. Transformation is at the very heart of the gospel. What you once were is not how you should now be. Your testimony and my testimony is how God took us and transformed us the way we once were versus the way we are now. This last um, Sunday, we had a baptism over at the Beach Water Park, and we baptized some 250 people. What a great time. They always turn out to be spiritually invigorating for me.
Because I hear the testimony, I hear the changes. This one guy said, as I was about to baptize me, he said, no, just wait a minute. He goes, you baptized me, you put me all the way down, all the way down to the bottom. It's like, you know, I've sinned and I'm burying the old man, so you make sure that it's dead. You bury me, you put me all the way down to the bottom. I said, okay, I will. <laughs> of course, it was shallow water, but I put him all the way down to the bottom. I held him there for a couple minutes. No, I'm just kidding, a few <laughs> seconds and brought him back up. But. Paul uses a very important term, does he not? In chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. You were dead on arrival, we discussed last week. D-O-A. It's not that you were sick or you spiritually didn't feel up to par or up to everybody else's level, but you were insensate, dead, unable to respond unless it were for an act of God. And so what Paul does is he takes us back. He makes us look back go B.C., before Christ, what we used to live like, act like, think like. And then he brings us back up to what God has done in us, for us, through us, and now among us. In fact, verses 1 through 4 is what God has done in us, transforming, changing for us from the way we used to be to the way we are now. And then... The next few verses, say verses 5 of chapter 2 through verse 9, is what he has done for us. Verse 10 is what he does through us. We are his workmanship. We reflect his glory. We are a poem, poetry of God, to reveal him to the world. Tonight, finishing off chapter 2, it's what he does among us. You might look at it this way. The first half of this chapter, as he's writing this letter, he's speaking more to the individual. In verse 11, he speaks more to the group, the body. He's put us all together. We love to speak about a personal relationship with Christ, and well, we should. It is personal, and it's personalized. But at the same time, it's not personal to the exclusion of every other Christian that you're sitting next to. You see, when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't say, and you should look up to heaven and say, my Father who art in heaven, but our Father, the reminder that we are a body. There is a corporate good. And so, Paul makes us look back. What God has done in us, for us, through us, now among us, he begins the chapter by looking at, at what sin has done against us. So we get the picture nice and black first. And then the white paint and the color comes later on. Last week we looked at the panorama of past, present, and future. Now, in uh, verses 11 through 22, as we finish this off tonight, he is still taking us back and forward. He's making us turn around to get a little bit of hindsight so that we might face life with insight. So we might get our bearings because what he's going to do in chapter 3 is make application. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. One of the healthiest things you can do in your own life is to look back from time to time. Do you do that? Do you ever take inventory and just pause and think, how much have I grown in the Lord? 
What is my spiritual appetite like now versus a year ago versus the day I came to Christ? Has my excitement for him dwindled or has it been fueled? Am I more excited or am I less excited about Christ? It's good to do that. It's good to look back and remind ourselves of all of the good things God has done. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord said, You shall therefore remember all of the good things the Lord has done in taking you out of the land of Egypt. And that's how we begin chapter 2, verse 11 tonight. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. If I were to give verses 11 through 22 a title, this is what I would call it. That was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. The transformation that takes place because of the gospel and your coming to Christ should change absolutely everything. So that you, you can't always lean back on how you used to be. Well, I, I am that way. It's just the way I am. You know, Germans are hot-headed. I'm angry because that's my genetic code. I drive that way because I'm Irish. I give those kind of looks because I have Latin blood. It's just part of my... You can't blame your behavior anymore on that. That was then. This is now. You were dead. You're now resurrected. You're now alive. And what Paul does is show us in these verses that before God we were unsaved, before men we were unsavory, unsightly, religious people especially. He's speaking mostly to non-Jews, Gentiles, which occupied most of the population base in Ephesus. That was then, this is now. You remember, just by way of segue in verse 4, After he paints a black picture, he says, but God, that's where it all changes. This is how it used to be, but God. God is introduced into the equation, everything changes. That's sort of what goes on in the rest of the chapter. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ. If you look down to verse 13, oh, we just did verse 13. Um, If you go over to verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and those who were near. Verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So it's this constant comparison, and you do well to do that from time to time. That was then, but this is now. That's how I used to live. That's how I was once regarded. But now my life is different. Somebody once said, you can tell the depth of the well by how much rope you let down. How bad were we? How horrible was our condition? Now, we might disagree on that assessment, 
Well, I wasn't that bad. Even though my wife says I was that bad, I wasn't that bad. But you see, look at how much rope God had to let down to rescue you. A lot. You want to see how bad it was, how bad sin is, how bad that separation? Look at the cross. What did it cost the Father to make you his possession? How much rope did he have to let down? That much rope. And so we look at the cross and we see the great depth of the love of God as well as the depth of our sin from which we were rescued. Now, something else to keep in mind. He is speaking to Gentiles. However, there were pockets of Jews in the city of Ephesus. The diagnosis of Paul is not a description of just some people, some really bad people, some obviously evil people, but this is his diagnosis of all people, young, old, non-religious and pagan, very religious and devout. It's a description of all people who are without Christ. Now, he mentions in verse 11 that we're to remember that we were once Gentiles in the flesh. And really, this fits us because most of us in this room are Gentiles, non-Jews. We might say garden-variety pagans. Most Americans are garden-variety pagans. At one point, we could say oh, America was a spiritual place, even a very religious place. I think those days are gone, perhaps in name only, slightly. But the description of those in Ephesus fits our description fairly well. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Circumcision, as you know, was a ritual that the Jewish people looked to to prove or express the covenant that they had as a nation with God. The problem is, though it was highly symbolic of saying, I cut away my flesh and my fleshly desires that I might serve God completely, what happened to circumcision is what happened to baptism and confirmation and christening, and even sometimes baby dedication. It became a ritual that people trusted in and compared one another by, so that a Jew would say as a slur about a Gentile, oh, he's uncircumcised, meaning he hasn't gone through the ritual we've gone through with God, therefore he's not expressing any kind of faith in God. So they took pride in their ritual. I meet people from time to time who, if I ask them a personal question like, what is your relationship with God like? They don't answer the question. They dance around it. I've been baptized, young man. So do you know Christ personally? Do you know God loves you? Jesus died for you. Are you following him? Do you love him? Are you walking in fellowship with him? I've been going to a church since I was a lad a small boy, a small girl. My grandmother, my grandfather, my parents told me all about God. That's wonderful. Now answer my question. 
Do you personally know Christ? It's funny how we are so quick to trust a ritual and go through a religion rather than a relationship with God. You know why? Because in a relationship, it demands repentance. Anybody can go through a ritual and do nothing else but keep the ritual, the baptism, the circumcision, the christening, and move on with their life, living their lives without any change at all. But looking back to a deed done once or twice. So they took pride, and the Jews got down on the Gentiles because they didn't have what the Jews had in terms of the ritual, in terms of the circumcision. Now, i got to tell you, honestly, there was a difference in the Old Testament. Not anymore, but in the Old Testament, there was a huge difference and a huge advantage of being a Jew. In fact, if you lived in Old Testament times and you wanted to know God, you had to become a Jew. You had to go through Judaism. Even Jesus acknowledged this. The Samaritan woman said, Well, you Jews have this big temple in Jerusalem, and our fathers say this is the place to worship. You remember what Jesus said. You don't know what you're worshiping. For salvation is of the Jews. That's why Paul writes these words. Let me read them to you, unless you could turn quickly to Romans chapter 9. I'll read them to you. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Listen to their advantages. To whom pertain the adoption, who is the only nation God called his son, his firstborn. To whom pertain the glory, what was that? That was the cloud, wasn't it? Through the wilderness and the fire at night. The Shekinah glory of God that surrounded that nation. To whom belongs the covenants. The covenant of Abraham for the land of Israel. The covenant of the law with Moses for the nation of Israel. The covenant with David for the Messiah of Israel. The giving of the law. To whom pertain the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So even Jesus, says Paul, was Jewish, a Jewish male. He was dedicated as an infant. He was bar mitzvahed in the temple. He kept the feast of Passover, etc., etc. There was a Jew. There was an advantage to being a Jew, and there was a Jew who had an advantage. No, there was an advantage to being Jewish. You had all of the covenants. So Paul is telling the Ephesians, you guys had none of that. You were so far from God. You were so distant from God. You had no hope. You had no Messiah. Notice what he says back in Ephesians. At that time, verse 12, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a picture. Hopeless humanity. Without Christ, without God, no hope. You know, if you're without Christ, you're without God. And if you're without Christ, you're without God and you're without hope. That's the picture of the Gentile world. You see, even the Jews... 
in the hardest of times at least had the hope of a Messiah. No matter how bad it got, for 3,500 years, the Jews yearned for the idea of a Messiah coming and delivering them, and that took them through lots of pain and sorrow. The Jewish prayer every day was, I believe that Messiah will come, and though he will tarry, I will wait for him every coming day. Gentiles had no messianic hope. And a black picture, having no hope and without God in the world. Would you agree with me that that is a description of our contemporary culture? Without Christ, generally. Without God, generally. Without hope. We live in a hopeless society. We live in a culture where people still, and at a younger age, are asking the deep questions, are they not? Why am I here? Where am I going? Is there a God? What is the purpose and meaning of life? Nicholas Cage, the actor, said, it could be that there is a hole within the soul of my generation. He continued, we have inherited the American dream, but where do we take it? That's emptiness. A guy who has it all, the actor, the award winner, who says, I have it all, but I don't know where to take it. There must be a hole in the soul of my generation. Honestly, how many people do you know who enjoy their life? How many Christians do you know that enjoy their life? For the most part, people I don't think do. Uh, Henry David Thoreau said most men live in quiet desperation. That they, they enjoy their marriage. They enjoy their children. They live life with zest, hope, joy, excitement. Lord, what's next? What an adventure. I know a lot of people, even believers, it's a grind. If you're a Christian, you have hope, man, woman. Should never be hopeless. That's a picture of us before Christ. Because look at verse 13. But now. You see, that was then. This is now. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. What is Paul referring to? But now what, Paul? What does it mean, afar off? What is this middle wall you're speaking about? Well, Judaism was not a religion of integration as much as a religion of separation. A couple thousand years ago, you couldn't just plop right into the temple and say, I'm going to go have a chat with God. I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies and just meet with God. You couldn't do that. In the temple, there were courts and walls and rooms of separation. In the synagogue, there were separate areas, one for men, one for women, and one for proselytes, those who wanted to become Jews, Gentiles getting circumcised and becoming a part of the community, separate. In the temple in Jerusalem, the largest court was for the pagans, the Gentiles. We would call these in a stadium the nosebleed section. They were really far away from the action, afar off from what was going on. Now somebody would ask, why did they even allow a court of the Gentiles in a Jewish holy place? 
because they wanted that to be a testimony to the nations. They wanted to develop, even within the Gentiles, a hunger for the things of God. So they had their own court. But if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go past a wall that led into a court for Jewish women. And then if you were a Jewish woman, you could only be in that court or the court of the Gentiles. You couldn't go into the next room, which was the court for Jewish men. If you were a Jewish man, you could be in the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, or the court of the men, but you couldn't go into the courtyard for the priests. If you were a priest, you could be in the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, and the court of the priests, but you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, which was reserved for the high priest who only went in one day per year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, after he sacrificed an animal for his own sins, sprinkled blood around, and walked in scared to death, lest he was doing or thinking something wrong and he be stricken dead. Wow, things have changed, haven't they? That was then, this is now. What Paul is saying is that you guys that were in the nosebleed sections of the stadium, the court of the Gentiles, way far off, you have been brought near. He's not saying that you have been elevated to the level of a Jew, as if the Jew is better than the Gentile. He's saying that whether you are a Gentile and are far off or a Jew and you think you're closer, God has elevated both of you together in this new body, this new man called the church. So there's no wall of separation anymore. Christ broke down the wall. By the way, you see where it says this middle wall of division between us? Let me tell you exactly what it referred to. In the temple, picture it, you're there to worship but you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, so we're all hanging out together. And you say, I want to get a closer look. This is cool, but I, I want a better view. So you get your binoculars out, and you walk up toward the court of the women, and you want to scope it out. Well, you go up to this wall, and there is this sign in Latin and Greek and Hebrew all around with this sign on it. It read, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. If you were a Gentile and you said, I'm tired of paganism. I want to convert. I want to worship this God. You would go to a rabbi. And the rabbi would perform a ceremony, if you were male, circumcision, no matter what your age is. And it was called bringing you near, as well as bringing you pain, bringing you near. You were afar off, now you are being brought near unto God. With that imagery in mind, look at that verse again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, and it's very emphatic in the Greek language, he himself is our peace who has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, those in the inner courts, those in the way out nosebleed section courts, both one, and has broken down the middle wall of division that is between us. How did he do it? Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man or body, that is the church, 
from the two, thus making peace. So, how did he pull it off? He pulled it off by dealing with this group of commandments that were a barrier to us ceremonially. You see, Jesus came and he said, Don't think that I have come to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Jesus Christ was the only perfect individual. He lived the perfect life you and I could never live. That is, Jesus was the only person in history to fulfill the moral law. By fulfilling the moral law and making himself a sacrifice, that pushed aside the necessity to keep ceremonial law, the Sabbath regulations, the dietary restrictions, all of those codes from Leviticus. They're fulfilled in Christ morally, hence you don't keep them ceremonially. It's abolished. It doesn't matter now if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile. That is, soteriologically, in salvation. Now, God does have a plan for the nation of Israel or Israel nationally, as there is a plan for Gentiles, etc. But when it comes to salvation, level ground, man, level ground. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. Look at that word reconcile. Let it sink in. It's one of the most important words in this chapter, in this book, in the Bible. Man is separated. We are separated from God. That's how we're born, dead in trespasses and sins. It doesn't take long, does it, to discover that we also become easily separated from one another. Parents from children, husbands from wives, friend from friend, nation against nation. It is quite easy to strike up a disagreement more so than an agreement and a reconciliation. Division and separation come so naturally to us. We have to fight against that. We have to preserve the unity in the spirit, do we not? So God created man upon the earth. Very shortly after their creation, Adam and Eve got separated from God. Their kids got separated from one another. Cain killed Abel. Soon there was violence, the Bible says, that covered the whole earth. Separation occurred. It's part of the fall. It's very natural. Hence, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. Paul's making a point. Don't miss it. If God is going to remove the barriers between you and him so that you're his child, God can do that in your life. And if God can do that in your life and in your life and in all of our lives so that there's no barrier between you and God, that means we're all his children. Through the same agency, we should then be getting along with one another and not allow anything in our way. So picture it in, the, in Ephesus. Gentile over here, Jew over here. In the past, Jew looked down on Gentile. In past, Gentile could care less about the Jew. Now they're saved. Now they're in the same church. Now they're called to love one another irrespective of background, culture, 
socioeconomics, language, race, gender. That's the church, man. That's what the church ought to be. That's what the church ought to be. Now look at the word reconciled. Katalasso is the Greek. It's a great word. It's an important word. It's a great Bible word. Katalasso means to restore. Uh, literally, it means to clear the path. You could say it means to change or alter thoroughly. That is, if you and I have a bad relationship, reconciliation will alter the way we relate to each other. The idea is to clear a path. Uh, a picture, um, a road strewn with debris after a hurricane. Somebody has to clear the path to enable you to get from point A to point B, yes? So God has removed the debris, the obstacles that stood in the way between us and him. Thus, there should be no enmity or obstacles or debris between us. And if there is, we should deal with it quickly, Matthew 18, and get on with it. One body, the new man, the church of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the early church was a veritable billboard of reconciliation? And it was absolutely monumental to 2,000 years ago have man and woman sitting next to each other in a service instead of being separated like in the synagogue. To have slave and slave owner holding arms, loving each other and singing worship songs to Jesus. People from all different groups, Jew and Gentile, all together. It was a billboard. However, it didn't come easy, did it? It was hard, wasn't it? Remember the first time that God started moving in this direction? There was a guy named Peter who fought against it. You know the story. Peter was on a rooftop in Joppa. And he's hungry and he's probably tired. And he sees in a vision this sheet being led out of heaven with all these unkosher meals, uh, food, beasts that are on it. And God, God says to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter very acquiescingly says, no way. Uh-uh. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unkosher or unclean. God said, whatever I've cleansed, don't you dare call unclean. It happened to him three times, and finally Peter takes God three knocks before Peter really opens the door. Peter realized, oh, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. I get it. If God calls a Gentile clean because of faith in Christ, I have no right as a Jewish male to say he's unclean. He's unkosher. At the same time, knock on the door, guys from Cornelius up in Caesarea, call for Peter. Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman soldier, has been calling upon God, and an angel says, go get Peter. He'll preach the gospel to you. Peter goes over to Cornelius' house, and he's, well, he's just embarrassed. He goes, you know, i got to tell you something. I just feel really weird being in a Gentile's house. You know I'm a Jew, and Jews can't hang out with you guys because you have cooties. <laughs> now, I'm paraphrasing slightly. I don't think you'll find cooties even in the New Living Translation. But It was just awkward for him to be there. But he said, yet I realize, for God has shown me, I have no right to call any man unclean whatever God has cleansed. He preached the gospel to this man. This man and his family received Christ. He baptized them, and the gospel went out to the Gentiles. Oh, that created a huge uproar later on 
when Paul, as well as Peter, started reaching out to the Gentiles, and the church in Acts chapter 15 had a conniption fit. That's what my mom used to call it. They were up in arms. How could you allow this to happen? So it didn't come easy. And Paul is in the throw of this transition writing about it. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and those of you who are near. I do not agree personally with churches segregating into groups. I think it, it works, but I don't think it's the best. I don't think it's the highest. People speak of their target group in a community. Some churches spend thousands of dollars studying demographics and looking at the demographic and the income level and the style of person and the education and they plant a church accordingly. And so they have Generation X churches and baby boomer churches and biker churches and, you know, tattoo churches and all sorts of stuff like that. It's fine, but it's not the best. The best is what I saw a few Easter Sundays ago right up in the front row right over here, a man in a three-piece suit and a tie sitting next to a guy with spiked hair, orange in color, leathers on, and spiked bracelet. Both had Bibles, both singing worship to Jesus, and I thought, cool. <laughs> That's cool. That's the church. Well, my target group is this, and my demographic, you know what? My target group is anybody who will listen to the gospel. I don't care if you have long hair, short hair, pink hair, bald and no hair, tattoos, lip rings, doesn't matter. If you will come, the doors are open. You're welcome to hear the gospel of Christ. There should never be any separation or segregation. I've gotten some letters from people. Have you seen the, my in row this week? Did you see that person who was dressed this way or had? Who cares? Good. I'm glad they're here, aren't you? What, do you want to kick them out? Don't write me. Why don't you just see how that sounds? Hey, you're not welcome here. Why? Hair's pink. Oh, really? Well, do you dye your hair? Yeah, but I dye it like normal. Oh, I think that's debatable. For through him, verse 18, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now get the transition. Yes. Yes, God did make a differentiation in the Old Testament between Israel nationally and all of the other nations of the earth. They were a chosen race, yes. God has a special plan for the chosen people, eschatologically. They are part of the covenant that God established with them for the land, the Messiah, etc. All of that God originated. But what Paul is saying is it's changed now in terms of salvation Anybody can come through Israel's Messiah, Jew or Gentile. Now, therefore, that was then, this is now. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. 
couple of different metaphors Paul has used. God has made a new body, a new man, a few verses back. That's the church, Jew and Gentile together. Now he speaks about a new building. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Top of that, the other course of stones, the foundation on top of the chief cornerstone, the apostles, the prophets, the teachings they gave in Acts. And then on top of that are new courses of stone that are being added to every day. God made a new man, a church. He established a body of Christ, past tense. He is making present tense. He is building present tense. A new building. And you can see why. Because as we saw this last Saturday and Sunday, a whole bunch of new people came in and were living stones added to the building. And the building, the body of Christ, the temple of God, which we are corporately, gets added to, gets strengthened year by year. So we're no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Let me tell you what that means. The foundation itself is not the apostles and the prophets. But Skip, it says that. But you're thinking in terms of Western building, where we put a cement slab down, put a couple two-by-four studs, and stucco it. They didn't do that in ancient times. The first thing they laid was a cornerstone. And sometimes that puppy was 29 feet long, the size of a railway boxcar. Huge, massive, foundational cornerstone. The cornerstone set the, the way for the rest of the layout of the building. In terms of symmetry and unity, they set the stones according to the cornerstone. So after the cornerstone came foundational stones. And then it was smaller as the building got larger for strength. Jesus Christ is the stone. He is the foundation. No other foundation, 1 Corinthians 1, can any man lay than what has already been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. So to put it in a Western building concept, you might say Jesus is the slab, and the apostles and the prophets and what they taught are the, the two-by-four studs that are laid down on the cement and then go up. The sheetrock, the wiring, the the batting, etc. That's all of us. But Jesus Christ is the foundation in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. I'm going to ask you a few questions as we close this book tonight. It says you're not a stranger. You're not a foreigner, verse 19. You're a fellow citizen. You're part of this new thing God is doing in the earth, this new building, this new man or body. Now, you may come to the assembly where we meet. How do you know if you're a citizen rather than a foreigner? Well, ask yourself a few questions. Number one, do you feel comfortable around Christians? Or are you more comfortable with another crowd? Man, I'm nervous around these Bible-toting people. Give me a bar any day. Well, that shows there's a problem. John said, if you love God, you're going to love his kids. Oh, they're not perfect, and we're not lovable all the time. But you will love God's children. So ask yourself that. Are you comfortable around God's people? 
Number two, ask yourself this question to determine if you're a foreigner or a citizen. Do you understand us? I remember the first time I went to a church, I didn't get it. I thought they were all weird. They spoke Christianese, some foreign language. They'd say things like, you know, I don't bear witness, brother, and I feel that. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I didn't understand it, and there was a good reason for it. I wasn't one of them. I didn't fit in. Just like somebody won't speak the language of one country who comes from another country, do you understand? You know, it says in Corinthians, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. And so could it mean that you're not a spiritual man or a woman, but you're still a natural man by nature, children of wrath, by nature apart from God, by nature hopeless? You've come to the assembly, you've come to the literal building, but you're not part of the metaphoric spiritual building. It's foreign to you. Do you feel comfortable? Do you understand it? Number three, to test if you're a foreigner or a citizen. Do you obey the laws of the country, of the kingdom? One of the giveaways that you belong to a certain country is that you know at least basically its framework, its laws, and you keep them. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. One of the first things you notice when you travel to the UK is that they drive on the wrong side of the road. Now they say that about our country. They say, these Americans, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Now, when we were having this discussion the other night, I said, no, we drive on the right side of the road, you drive on the wrong side of the road. They said, well, I guess it's open to debate. I said, no, Henry Ford developed the automobile. It was developed in this country, so I think you have the right to choose what part of the road is the right versus the wrong. And they were quick to tell me that it was Henry McFord that invented the automobile, and I had my history all wrong. So the debate rages. At any rate, if you go to England or Scotland and you try to drive your automobile in the right lane versus the left lane, it will be quickly apparent you are a foreigner after a ticket, an accident, and all sorts of embarrassment. Do you keep the laws? Are you part of the law structure of the land? 